called Deep Talks with Jesus since January. And we've, we've finished the, the Deep Talks section because that section specifically was focused on uh, chapters 13 to 17. Jesus has this extended conversation with his followers. Uh, and we finished last week with Jesus' prayer. Uh, and I don't know about you, but I think last week was a really special time of worship. Uh, there was just a really special, even tangible sense of God's presence as we prayed together last week. Uh, it was awesome. And, and I, I long for that kind of thing. And it was really awesome to be able to engage with Jesus' prayer in that. Um, and I just encourage you to carry that into your life. Like that prayer we prayed together as a community last week, it's a prayer Jesus is praying now for us. Uh, and so don't let last week just be an experience that's in the past. But John 17 is a powerful prayer that reveals to us the heart of Jesus for his church today. And so continue with that. This week, we're going to be in, in chapter 18, the very next chapter. So right immediately after Jesus finishes this extended conversation, which we've just been spending time in the last couple months, he gets arrested, okay? And so we're heading towards Easter right now. Easter's coming, going to be here in a few weeks, and, and that's the journey we're on. We're headed to the cross, okay? Jesus is headed to the cross. And we're going to read today from John chapter 18 where Jesus is arrested. Uh, and for anybody here that has been arrested or has a family member who's been arrested or charged criminally, you know when a criminal charge is laid, it changes a person's life forever, okay? Whether that's true or not, and, and some of the documentaries I enjoy watching or movies are of people who were falsely accused of something, and then they're proven innocent later, okay? And it's always pretty sad. When you, when you get into someone's story who was falsely accused, and maybe they went to prison, or maybe they were just looked at poorly by their community for years because of a false accusation, and then they were freed or liberated. But what it's done is it's given me this picture for, like, when someone is a arrested or charged criminally, it just changes the perception of that person, okay, forever. And, and some of those stories are really sad. I've watched some documentaries that are just heartbreaking of people that were falsely accused of some horrible crimes. Um, but then I've also, and I know people, and you, you know this of my family, um, a lot of people in my family have been arrested, and rightfully so, okay? <laughs> and that's, um, and, but an arrest and a, a criminal charge changes a person's life. Sometimes it's hard to get a job. You're looked at uh, sideways. You're looked at whatever. People look down on you or judgmental. Or, um, I remember the story, my dad, when I was younger, um, and my, my dad, you know, had come out of prison and was serving Jesus and was pastoring and there was a, a lady in our church who came to know Jesus. And she had a pretty cool encounter with God, and things were changing. Um, and she went and visited this other church. And, this, and I've, just, I've never forgotten the story because I thought, I don't understand how a pastor could, could say this. But this pastor pulled her aside and, and started explaining to her about my dad's criminal history. And he's like, you realize who that pastor is, right? Like, you realize all the stuff that he's done. Like, probably shouldn't be going to that church. And, uh, and I just remember hearing that, and I'm like, did he understand the gospel? I mean, when Jesus changes a person, he, he changes them, right? It's like a night and day difference. But the reality is, is when, when that charge is laid, it changes things. And what we're going to read today is that Jesus, he's the perfect one. He's the one without sin, willingly steps into being arrested and having this charge laid on him 
that makes him look shameful. Like he willingly embraces shame. You know, the reality, even for those people that have experienced false accusation, like no person on the planet is actually guilt-free or perfect or sinless, right? So even people that were falsely accused, and, and maybe it wasn't a criminal false accusation. Maybe you've been falsely accused and it just made you mad. Anybody ever have that experience? You were accused of something, somebody thought you did something and it made you really mad, right? You just, like, there's something in us that just gets angry. We're just upset. Like, how could you, how could you accuse me of that? But if we're honest and we take a step back, like, you know, we, we've probably done something similar. You know, we, we've all done something that's wrong, right? And some of those things are not known. And if they were known, then we would be looked at maybe horribly, maybe looked down on. But we've got Jesus, okay, in this this text that we're going to look at, he's the perfect one, the only one who is sinless, and he willingly steps into this accusation. The scriptures tell us that Jesus actually takes shame upon himself, public shame. Most of the pictures you see of Jesus on the cross, he's, he's got a loincloth. Well, he would have actually been naked. That's how, that's how criminals were crucified during Roman times 2,000 years ago. It was, it was a way of putting as much public shame on a person as possible. And so you've got Jesus, the sinless one, the perfect one, the one who's only ever loved, willingly stepping into this public humiliation and shame. And it's all because of love. And so uh, my desire today is, is to communicate this in a way that just helps us understand his love for us. 1 John 4 verse 19 says this, it says, we love because he first loved us. So Lucy, uh, my little girl, she's nine, okay, so um, she's, the, she's the fourth one in the mix of our kids, okay? Um, but we have this thing where I'll tell her that I love her, and then she'll say to me, she's like, well, I love you more. And I'm like, no, no, I loved you first, okay? So I win, okay? <laughs> and I feel like to me, that's like kind of a like conversation stopper. I'm like, well, you can say you love me more, but I loved you first. Like before you could even understand love, I, I was loving you while you were in your mom's womb, okay? Um, and it's similar, so, so the love that God has for us, okay, the only reason that we can love him is because he loved us first. We love because he first loved us. And so, and I want to give you a picture this morning of a mom, okay? Um, moms, and I'm, I'm not talking about your mom specifically, okay? Maybe your mom fits this, uh, maybe not, but, but moms are like a symbol of love, okay? And so every one of us that's here this morning spent time inside of a womb, okay? It's a crazy thought, okay? But like the way that you and I came to be, the way that we were, we were formed and, and, and came to be live and human or whatever, we spent time in a womb and, and we actually caused irreparable damage to our mothers, okay? You guys know that? We caused, ir- uh, yeah, some moms are saying amen. Kim's like amen. Like, that time in, in your mother's womb, you caused irreparable damage, okay? Um, Justin and Lorna here, they just had their, their other little girl that's really, really exciting. Yeah, let's just give it a little, let's, this is exciting. <laughs> I almost, they came last week, I was surprised to see them because they were, like, just had had the baby, and my ADD almost got a hold of me, and I was almost like, Justin and Lauren, everyone, but I was mid-sermon, and uh, I didn't want to cause a distraction, but um, Lauren just went through this for the second time, okay? So... When babies are, are, are cared for in the womb of their mother, like, there's, this, there's irreparable damage that's caused, okay? And, and they, like, and then when they're 
the first few years of the life of the child, like, it's just nonstop. Okay? You ever been around somebody that just feels needy to you? Where you're like, you just need to be, stop being needy? Maybe they're an adult, okay? And you're like, ah, oh, you're so needy. Like, but, but babies are like far worse than the neediest person you know. Right? Like, they're far, they're far more needy. They're, they're like, the needs of, of a child to, to its mom is like so much more needy than any of the people that you can think of that right now that maybe come to your mind, you're like, oh, that person's so annoying, so needy, okay? Okay? So a mother is a symbol of, of love. And, and we love, okay, and the reason I say I'm not talking about specific mom, maybe there's some of you here today that you, for whatever reason were separated from your mom or you were in um, a home where there was abuse and there wasn't proper care. And if that's the case, um, I, I believe God wants to, to do a healing work in your heart. But I'm just talking, generally speaking, like, symbolically, mothers are like a symbol of love more than any other symbol we have in this world, okay? Uh, and and I, I'm saying this for a reason. So did you know that there's like a number of times in the scripture where, where God uses metaphors of a mother to describe his love for his people? Did you know that? Like, God actually uses mother metaphors to describe himself. In Isaiah chapter 49, this will be up on the screen, 14 to 16, it says, but Zion, okay, and that's Israel, but Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me, my Lord has forgotten me. I just, just before I read the rest of this, God is talking to his people and he's saying, you, you feel like I've forgotten you. Like if you feel forgotten or overlooked by God, like you're in good company. God is actually addressing this group of people, okay, the, the Israelites back in the days of Isaiah, a thousand years before Jesus. And he's saying, um, and so the Lord has forsaken me, my Lord has forgotten me. He's saying, this is how you feel. Now listen to how God describes his love. He says, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. And listen to how this verse ends, okay? Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. I, I actually love my kids a lot, but I feel like it doesn't compare. Like the way that I'm able to express my love to my kids, like it doesn't even compare to what I've seen my wife do for our kids. Okay? Like the, the, like the whole like birthing experience and all that goes into that. And then like those first few years, like, like, if my kids want to go and have fun and do something awesome, I'm there. I'm like, hey, let's do it. Let's go for a hike. Let's do something crazy. Like, I'll throw them up in the air or whatever. But whenever they're, like, in need of comfort in some way, it's mom every time. Okay? There's this, like, like a mother is this symbol of, like, just love that, that has no end. Love that, love that is just overflowing. Love that just comes naturally. Love that has no barriers, okay? And God is saying to, to a people, to Israel, who feel forgotten. He's saying, you feel overlooked? You feel forgotten by God? He's like, he compares himself to a mother. Can a woman forget her nursing child? A woman could not possibly forget her nursing child. And so he's saying, like, that's the kind of love that I have for you. It was like, it was like God is using the best, most loving metaphor he possibly could to communicate to his people, I love you. And it was this symbol of, of a mom. In Isaiah chapter 66, verse 13, God says this. He says, I will comfort you there in Jerusalem as a mother comforts her child. So when God wants to show his love to his people, he, he compares himself to a mother. And then in the New Testament, in, in Luke, 
Jesus, he arrives and he looks over Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is like, just at the time that Jesus came, is in a mess. People are walking away from God. They're, they're doing all kinds of sinful, evil things. And, and Jesus cries out and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, how I've wanted to gather you like a hen gathers the chicks under her wing. Again, he compares himself to a mother hen. Right? So there's this, like, this symbolic, like the love of a mother is beyond what you and I can, can, can figure out. But it's this powerful symbol of, a, of the love of God. And this, this ties into what we're going to read about today with Jesus' arrest. I just want to set it up that way um, because what Jesus does for you and I is, is the most loving act that has ever been done in the history of the world. Uh, and I'm, gonna, I'm just going to pray before we, we jump in because um, um, my prayer today is that as we read this passage and we talk about what Christ has done in giving himself up for us, that we would actually have a deeper understanding of just of his love. And, and more than an understanding mentally, that it would just sink into our hearts that we would know we are loved by God. Um, so that's, gonna, that's my prayer, and I'm just going to pray that God will do that in, in all of us, uh, myself included this morning. Let's, let's pray. Lord, um, talking about your love feels intimidating because I know that there is no way that I could use the English language well enough to communicate your love uh, in a way that is sufficient or in a way that captures it. Your love for us is beyond what we could ever understand. No newborn could understand the love that her mother has for her. And in the same way, there's no way we could fully understand in our human minds the love you have for us. It's really easy to feel overlooked by you. It's easy to feel forgotten, especially when we're going through difficult times, especially when we think about all the maybe trauma and difficult things we've dealt with in our past. It's easy to feel like you don't love us. But Lord, the, the love that you have for us, what you communicate to us in the scripture is that it's so rich, it's so beautiful, it's so profound uh, that it goes beyond what we could understand. And I just pray today as we read this passage, Jesus, that you would give each one of us in this room a really, uh, a real sense of your love for us, God. Help us to have open hearts. Help our ears to be open to hear what you are saying. We love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. So John chapter 18, verses 1 to 14, this is the arrest of Jesus and the betrayal. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place for Jesus, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to him, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. So he asked them again. And I just, I just want to picture that scene. Jesus, and I'm going to I'll touch on this, but when Jesus declares to, to the crowd, okay, so, um, and, and the, the original language shows you there was Roman soldiers and Jewish soldiers who came to arrest Jesus. These guys meant business, okay? When they showed up, when these, like, uh, Jewish ruling officials wanted to go arrest Jesus. They went and got Romans to come with them and Jewish soldiers. There probably was a, ma a, a major amount of people there, okay? 
Uh, and, and Jesus, when he reveals, when he says to the crowd, okay, that he says to them, like, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says, I am he. And that whole group of soldiers, like, they take a step back and they fall to the ground at the moment Jesus declares who he is. If Jesus wanted to get out of what was about to happen, it would have been easy. Okay, all he had to do was say, I am he. And, and these, these people, at the moment of revelation of who Christ was, they, they couldn't even stand. And it's almost like Jesus, and, so, and you've got to just picture this, okay? I don't know how you read the scriptures, but like, you almost got to picture Jesus is almost like, he's like, it's okay, guys, get up. Like, these are the people that are there to arrest him. He gives this, this revelation, they step back, they fall to the ground, and he could have walked away. He could have gotten away from this group of, of men that were there to arrest him. But it's almost like he's trying to encourage them along in their job, like, it's fine, it's fine, just, just get up, you can arrest me. Like, he's, he is in total and complete control of what's happening here. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Just notice the, who's, in, who's in charge, who's really got the control uh, in this passage. But the way that he uses his power is brilliant. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of, of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers, their captain and the officers of the Jews, arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. So under, underneath what we're talking about today, I want you to know what Jesus is doing by giving himself up to this band of soldiers is motivated by nothing other than love for you and for, and for me, for his followers. Okay, what, what drove him to allow this, this, this band of wicked soldiers to, to arrest him was love. Like, that, that is what is going on in this story. That, like, everything Jesus is, when we, when we celebrate Easter every single year, like, we're celebrating the greatest act of love that human history has, has, has recorded, okay? There is no greater act of love. And, and you have to remember, if you remember one thing about Easter, like, just know what Christ has done for you and I, it was motivated by love. It was this deep and profound and rich love that you and I can't understand. The best analogy that, that, that the scriptures give us about that kind of love is when God says, like a mother with her nursing infant. That's how much I love you. Like a mother who, who went through those nine months with a baby in the womb and, and, and there was irreparable damage to her body. Like that's, that's the kind of love. Like God is saying, that's the best picture I can give you of what this love. So everything that we, we see in these scriptures of what Jesus is doing is motivated by love. So we're just going to look at two, two um, pieces of significance in this story, okay? And I just want to, to, to give you this. When you read the scriptures, and, and I encourage us on a regular basis, like, be people who read the scriptures. And when you do, ask God, like, God, what are you saying to me? Are you, are you speaking to me? Like, are you, are, you, are you wanting me to change something about my life? Are you wanting me to understand something? Here's a question uh, that I would encourage you to ask often when you read scriptures, okay? What is the significance of? So when you're reading the scriptures, a lot of times you read something that's confusing, and you're like, why is that in there? Okay? So we just read in here, Jesus, there's some kind of funny things going on. Jesus talks about, like, shall I not drink the cup 
that the Father has given me? Like, well, what does the cup mean? Right? Uh, and there's lots of places in Scripture where you, you'll, you'll come across something and it's confusing. You're like, why is that in there? Or you'll read about something in the Old Testament. We talked about this a few weeks ago that maybe disturbs you. Maybe God commanded for someone to be killed for something. And you're like, well, why is that in there? And you, you kind of get upset. Uh, uh, one of the questions I would encourage you to make a regular part of your reading of Scripture is, what is the significance of? Okay, so when you see something in Scripture that might be puzzling, like, begin with that question. What is the significance of that? What's God trying to say? What's He trying to communicate? What does this mean? Okay, rather than just kind of writing something off or saying, oh, that's confusing and, and moving on. And so this is the approach uh, I'm going to take as we look at two, two uh, significant things in this story today. First, uh, the, the question I want to ask of, of this passage is, what is the significance of the fact that what, we're ju- what we just read took place in a garden? Do you remember another scene in a garden? Do you remember something else that happened in a garden in the Scriptures? Okay, so if you go back to the first couple pages of the Bible, there's a garden, okay? There's Adam, there's Eve, they're in a garden. God created the first man, the first woman, they're in this beautiful garden. It's perfect, it's beautiful, it's lush, whatever they want, they can have, okay? Adam and Eve at that time, they didn't work the way that you and I had to work. Like, they could speak something and it would just happen. Like, they, they were in the, like, the presence of God whenever they wanted it to be. Like, you know how sometimes, and I referenced it already, sometimes we feel distant from God, we feel like He's far away, or we go through a difficult time and we feel like He's unfair. Like, Adam and Eve just, like, there was none of that in the garden. There was this perfect harmony and, and unity with God and with each other. It was beautiful. It was awesome, right? And God gives one rule in the garden, okay? So He creates all this beautiful stuff and these trees and these fruits and all the things that Adam and Eve could do. And the Bible doesn't tell us how long, how long they lived there, but they probably lived there for quite a while and enjoyed the beauty of the garden. It was awesome. And God gives them this one rule. He says, there's this, this one thing I don't want you to do. There's a tree in the garden that represents the knowledge of good and evil. And there's fruit on that. And if you eat that fruit, uh, it, it's going to change you. So don't eat that fruit. Okay? And then, and you read this in the first few pages of the Bible, the, the serpent comes along, the devil, okay, and tempts um, Eve and Adam, okay? So the scriptures are very clear that Adam is standing right with Eve when this happens. This is a conversation I have with my boys because my boys like to, like, talk about, like, differences between men and women. And so I remember my, when we were, like, talking about this story, uh, Malachi and Andrew were like, oh, Eve, it was the girl's fault, right? <laughs> it was a conversation we had. And, uh, and, and maybe you've, like, come across that where you're like, oh, if Eve hadn't have eaten that apple, my land, you know, just what, what a difference that would have made. Well, if you read the story, when, when Eve, and it wasn't an apple, by the way. It, it doesn't say it was an apple. It says it was a fruit. But we, we always usually refer to it as an apple. But when she took that fruit, the scriptures say her husband was standing right with her. So during the conversation she's having with the serpent, he was standing right there. Okay? And then when God comes to punish Adam and Eve for, for what they've done, he first confronts Adam. And what does Adam do? He blames his wife. He's like, oh, it was this woman you gave me, right? Anybody ever done that in marriage? You ever blame your wife? Or have you ever just blamed someone else, okay? That whole thing. That started in the garden. The whole, like, tendency that we have to blame someone else for something started in the garden. But Adam was standing right there with Eve the whole time. He could have spoke up and said, no, God said not to eat it. But he was just as tempted as she was. He went along with it just like she did. And then God confronts Eve. She blames the serpent, okay? And so in the garden, what we see is that when, when Adam and Eve are confronted for their 
sin for deliberately disobeying God, okay? So they ate the fruit, and it was this sin. It was the first time that humans had done something deliberately opposite to what God had said, and it triggered a, a chain of events that we're still living under the effects of today, okay? I don't believe there's anything magical per se in the fruit they ate, but what happened was that it was the first time that they used their will, their free will, their ability to choose to reject God. It was the first time that they were like, you know, I don't think what God is saying is the wisest, smartest, most appealing way. I'm going to do things my way. So then they went and they did the opposite of what God said. It was the first time that humans used will to just reject God, okay? And it, and it triggered a chain of events. It opened up for this curse. But what I, what I want you to, to, to think about in this is that Adam and Eve, when they were confronted with their sin, they hid. It was the first time that they realized that they were naked, Okay? They're, they're, they're naked, they're ashamed, and they hide. They hide their faces. They're covered with shame. Jesus is also in a garden. So when he's arrested, he's in a garden. Do you, do you realize, like, Jesus is like the new Adam. So, so Adam, okay, Adam and Eve represent humanity, and they, they reject God. They go against what God says. They, they open up this, this um, they, they trigger a chain of events that leads to, to sin and rebellion and wickedness and all this stuff. Okay? And so humanity struggles with that for millennia afterwards. But Jesus is in this garden. He's the new Adam. Okay? The reason John's drawing our attention to the fact that this is happening in the garden is that Jesus is reversing what was done back in Eden. So when, when Adam and Eve were like ashamed and they hide from God, the, in Genesis you read it, when, when God shows up, he goes looking through the garden for, for Adam and Eve, and they're hiding, right? They're afraid. They're covering their faces. They're filled with shame. You've got Jesus here, and, and he is just bold. He's absolutely bold, right? When, when the people come looking for him, he, he says, who are you looking for? I am he. They draw back. They fall to the ground, and then he asks them again, hey, who are you, who are you here for? He's like, he's like saying, go ahead, do what you're ready to do. He faces head on what's going on. You know, and I, I just, I think about stuff that's going on today. There's lots of reasons for us today to feel shame. I listened to a podcast a few weeks ago. Some of you might have heard about it. There's a podcast that's become popular because it got turned into a TV show about Thunder Bay. So it's on Canada land. It's called Thunder Bay. Um, and it's a, an investigative kind of journalistic approach to some of the horrible things that have happened in our city. Okay? Uh, and and it, it's a TV show as well. So it's on Crave, and um, it just exposes some of the darker parts of the history of our city. Exposes racism in our city. Exposes some of the things that happened on the police force in our city. Okay? I'm not saying whether everything it, that's presented in there is, is totally factual or not, but I'll tell you what, they, they hit on a lot of stuff that's very true. Some of the racism that's torn apart our city, some of the murders that have been unsolved for various reasons. Like, there's just some, some dark things that have happened in our city. And, and it's kind of a shameful thing. This, this podcast was quite popular. The first few episodes came out in 2018, and then there was uh, a part two that came out just a couple years ago, and now it's being turned into a documentary. And so people all over the country are kind of looking in at Thunder Bay. And I think in some ways there's a tendency for some people to be like, oh, that's not my problem, and to kind of hide from it. But if you listen for what was, what's being revealed in some of that stuff, there's a lot of truth. There is a lot of racism that's gone on in our city. There is a lot of things that have been covered up. There is all this, this stuff. And, and you know what? Like, 
that shame is a temptation for all of us. Temptation for all of us to say, no, it's not me. It wasn't my problem, right? Like when Adam was confronted, he's like, no, it wasn't me. When Eve was confronted, no, it wasn't me. Like we have this tendency to, to say, oh, <clears throat> it wasn't me. It's not my, it's not my problem. You know, and, and um, those kinds of investigative journalistic uh, um, newscasts and stories can actually shed uh, not light but darkness on, on a city like ours. But when I read what Jesus is doing here, do you know what Jesus is, is saying here? He's so much different than Adam and Eve. So there, in all of us, there's a temptation and a tendency to say, oh, it's not me. It's not my fault. I was, that was somebody else. It's not my problem. I just want to like kind of hide from it. There's a lot being exposed today. There's a lot of corruption being exposed today. And there's a tendency, I think, in all of us to say, oh, it's not my problem. That was somebody else. It's not my fault. Jesus is so different. You know that he, uh, there's a slide, yeah, that's on me. So Jesus faces shameful accusation, and he says, that's on me. So you, you take this to the present day, okay? You look at some of the shame and the things that have gone on in our city, right? What we see in Jesus, like when, when he's being arrested for something that he didn't do, you know what he realizes? Like he, he's saying all of that evil, all of that wickedness, that's on me. I'll take it. Like, he, he, he takes that. He takes the brunt of it. He takes it on his shoulders. You know, I think about some of the things that have gone on in our city, you know, and, 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 and the exposure that's happened on, on some of the past and some of the history and even some of the present, even some of the messes of things that are going on now. You know, people like to fight and point the finger, well, that was them or it wasn't me or, you know, that, that was something else or it wasn't true and the facts aren't all whatever. Like, Jesus is so different. You know, when, when he's accused and he's not even to blame, he, he stands up, he says, that's on me. I'll take it. And he's motivated by love. And I believe he's still at work today. When you think about some of the darkness and the things that are going on in our city, the reason I have hope for Thunder Bay isn't because of, of, of a desire to see things swept under the rug or to, to forget about things. It's because I believe the gospel. You know what Jesus does with the gospel? Like, what he's saying is, he's like, I'll, I'll take all that. The new Adam will not hide in the garden from God's purpose as the first Adam did. Jesus would meet his purpose head on. The second, so there's the garden, okay? The significance of the garden is, is so profound. Jesus is the second Adam, okay? He's reversing the curse that, that had been uh, laid out because of rebellion. The second thing, I want to talk about the cup over the sword, all right? And so... We see in this story, Peter, okay, so at the moment Jesus is about to be arrested, Peter pulls out his sword, and he goes to probably, like, take the guy's head off, okay? Like, he probably wasn't aiming for, for the guy's ear, okay? Most likely, okay, if Peter was actually, like, he's willing to fight, there's this, like, probably a few hundred soldiers, Roman and Jewish, they're armed to the hilt, like, they're ready to fight, and so... The disciples are a small group, and, and we know from the book of Luke they only have two swords. Like, Peter wasn't just like, oh, I'm just going to cut off the guy's ear. That'll teach him. Like, he was, he was going for it. He misses, cuts off the guy's ear. Okay? Jesus rebukes Peter, says, put your sword down. And you know that there's, there's this, like, uh, the, the symbols of the sword and the cup in this story are so profound. Because the sword represents power. It represents fighting. In this story, we see Jesus, who's got ultimate power, but he lays down his life. And so, so 
So the sword represents like a fight, a battle. I'm willing to, to, to lay down my life. And we talked about this when we talked about Peter back in the Deep Talks series. Like Peter was, really, he was willing to die fighting, but he was not willing to lay down his life as Jesus was asking. Because Jesus willingly laid down his life because he was taking shame, evil, sin, all of it upon himself. That was the way that he was going to defeat it. Peter wasn't willing to enter into that kind of shame. And so he was, he was ready to fight, and, and he gets rebuked by Jesus. So, so Jesus looks at Peter and says, put your sword down. And you know what I, like, I love about this story is that when, when you look at what's going on, Jesus is like, he's the one with the power in this story. When he says, I am he, the soldiers draw back and they fall to the ground. If Jesus wanted to knock them all out after that, if Jesus wanted to, whatever he wanted to do, he could have done in that moment, right? So he's got power. He's got more authority than any sword ever had, right? When, when, when a couple hundred soldiers show up to arrest him, he's not intimidated because he's got the power of God in and through everything that he says and does, right? But he lays that down. And then he starts talking about this cup. And, and the question that, that I want to uh, ask us is, what, what is that cup that Jesus refers to? In the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's asking the Father to remove the cup from him. Okay, so in, in Mark chapter 14, verse 36, Jesus says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So, what is the cup? So, Jesus, like, what's the cup Jesus is referring to? Have you ever thought about what Jesus refers to in this passage and in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Like, what, what is this cup symbolized? What does the cup that Jesus is talking about represent? Anybody? Suffering, yeah. Suffering and wrath. Okay, so the, the cup is significant. Uh, on the next slide, the cup represents suffering and wrath. And I, there's a couple verses, there's, there's lots of other places we could go, but I'll just give you a couple highlights. In, in Psalm 75, verse 8, it says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. It's a pretty somber verse, okay? In Isaiah chapter 51, it says, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Okay, it sounds harsh, right? There's these, there's these passages in the Old Testament that talks about the cup of God's wrath, the cup of suffering. And a lot of us stumble over God's wrath. A lot of us struggle with with the judgmental side of God, okay? It's, it's a hard thing to understand, but especially when you're, you're trying to understand God's love and His grace. And, and maybe, you know, as, as someone who struggles yourself and you, you struggle to feel loved, you struggle to feel accepted, and you read some of the passages in the Bible that show the judgment of God, and it just feels like, how do I connect with that? This cup that Jesus refers to, it would have been really well known to the people that heard Him pray that prayer, they would have been very familiar with the passages in the Bible that talk about this cup that represented the suffering and the judgment of God. And so when Jesus is in the garden, in the other three Gospels, um, and John doesn't show this, but in the other three Gospels, it shows Jesus kneeling down, and he says, Lord, like, if it's possible, please remove this cup from me. And it says that Jesus was praying, and, and, and he was crying, and he had such emotion welled up 
that he was actually crying drops of blood. It was like drops of blood were coming out of him. He had so much just worked up because of what was going on and what he realized was about to happen. And he's saying, God, if there's any other way, please take this cup from me. And the cup represents this suffering. It represents taking on the wrath of God. And you know what's powerful is in the scene that we just read, like, it, it actually shows us Jesus, if he really wanted to go against God, if he wanted to be like the first Adam, he totally could have because he had the power. When he says, I am he, these soldiers fall to the ground. He could have used his power to destroy those soldiers in a heartbeat, but then there'd be no hope for you and I today. Jesus knew that what he was about to do was going to make freedom possible for every single human being on the planet, you and I sitting in the room. Love motivated him to do what he did. So Jesus, he takes the cup. He suffers for us. That cup that the Old Testament is referring to, this wrath, this suffering, is, 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 is something Jesus took upon himself. It was like he took all of our shame, all of our punishment, all of the things that, that, that we experience and struggle and, and, and have difficulty with, like he willingly steps into that. Here's, I want to close with this, this image and it's from a sermon I heard years ago by one of my favorite preachers. Um, but it just helped me to understand God's love in a deeper and more profound way with a symbol. Um, my, one of my favorite preachers, if you know me at all, you know I talk about Tim Keller sometimes. I've read a lot of his writing and listened to a lot of his, his sermons. Um, and he preaches this one sermon about the rainbow. Okay? So, again, back in Genesis, uh, Noah, God commands him to build the ark. He builds the ark. Okay? Saves saves his family, and, and when he gets off the ark, God gives a symbol. He puts a rainbow in the sky, right? And it's a symbol of God's promise. He says, I'll never flood the earth again, okay? Here's the profound truth, and I'm summarizing this whole sermon into like just a couple minutes here, okay? But it just gives this a beautiful picture of the love of God. When you, when you go back and study the Hebrew word that, that is used for rainbow, it, like, it actually um, was a war bow. Like, you ever notice that, like, a rainbow looks like, you know what a bow and arrow looks like, bent over when it's strung, right? You get that, sim that symbol, okay? When, when you look up in the sky and you see a rainbow coming, coming down, okay, if there was a string across it, which way is the arrow pointing, right? It points up. And so, in, in this powerful sermon, it just rocked me to my core. Um, Keller, Keller shows, like, the, you know, the, the Hebrew wording and stuff, and he's showing, like, God, what he was saying when he put that symbol in the sky, God symbolically was giving us a picture. He's saying, my war bow, I've hung that up. I've hung it up. So the flood was like God's judgment. When you, when you read about what's going on in Genesis, there was all kinds of sin and there was wickedness, and God grieved that he had created humanity. He saw all the ways that humans were treating each other and the way they were rejecting God, and he grieved that he had created humanity. So he sent a flood, he saves Noah, and all of the rest of the people die. Okay, it's a tragic story. It's, it's sad. Underneath it is love. Okay, and I don't have time to, to get into that. But the end of the story, it's like God says, I hung my bow up in the sky. And you know what it's a picture of? That arrow pointed upwards. It was prophetic. It was a prophetic symbol of the day that the Son of God would come down and take the full force of that wrath. You see that? Like, that, that bow hung in the sky with, this, with the arrow, it's, it's strung across, and it's like the arrow's pointed upwards, and Jesus is coming and saying, it's, uh, it's on me, I'll take it. All that shame, all that rebellion, all those horrible things, it's like, I'll, I'll take that, it's on me. Like, it's love. 
I'm going to invite the team to come up. When we, when we move towards Easter, I want you to know in the depths of your being that you are so deeply and profoundly loved by God. Like, if, if as a follower of Jesus, there is nothing more important to know than the fact that God loves you. You come around church, we're going to encourage you to, to help out with a meal. We're going to encourage you. We've asked people to come and serve and volunteer and help do renovations and help do all this stuff. And sometimes it can feel like, you know, well, really what I'm worth is just what I do. You know, I, I kind of earn my way by what I do. If I'm really a Christian, I'll do all these things. But no, like if, if that's what you think, you've, you've missed it. People that serve God uh, in, in the best way possible are those that realize that they're so deeply and profoundly loved by God. Like that, that everything that we do from Him, is be, it comes from a place of realizing that I, you're so loved by Him. Right? That image we talked about at the beginning of the mother, you know, for, for those of us that have had you know, good experiences with our mom, for those of us that our moms are still around, it is important to acknowledge what they've done because that act of love that they did, even though they were probably imperfect afterwards, is the greatest act of love, right? They've, they've, they've sacrificed their own self for their children. And God is saying, that's what I've done. That's what I'm doing for you. And so at Jesus' arrest, we see him saying, it's on me. I'll take that. I will give myself up. He lays down power. He drinks the cup of, the, of suffering and wrath, takes it upon himself because of his love for you and I. You're so deeply and profoundly loved by God. Let's just stand. If, if you're able, I'm going to pray. Um, and we'll sing these last couple songs. And, and I just want to encourage you too, even as we, as we sing these songs, if, if a reminder of God's love was something that you needed today, then just even as we sing these songs, just open your heart to God and thank Him for His love. My hope from today's message was that it would inspire an attitude of just absolute thankfulness and gratitude to God for what he's done for us. I hope if you leave today with one thing, it's leaving with just this, this thankfulness, this realization of God, what you've done for me is so far beyond what I'll ever understand, but your love for me is just so real. So receive it. If you've not surrendered your life to Christ, today is the time to do that. The altars are always open. If someone wants prayer, I invite you to come up. But just open your heart to him. Let's pray before we sing. Lord, I just want to thank you for your word. Um, again, Lord, it is, it is hard to communicate your love because your love is, is so rich and it's so profound and it's beyond um, what we as human beings can fully articulate. But God, I do believe it's something we can experience, Lord. And if, for those that are in this room today that need a reminder of your profound love, I just pray that there would be a real special sense of that in, in the remainder of this time as we sing these last couple songs, but even as we go from this place. And Lord, for some people, there's some of us that are in this room that are actually going to go to a place this week where we're going to face some things that are really difficult, and we're going to feel like you're distant, like those Israelites did in Isaiah. We're going to feel like, where are you? Maybe it's because of health and, and suffering that way. Maybe because it's a difficulty in the family, or we just feel totally misunderstood by you. I just pray that even in those moments... Lord, that there'd be a reminder that your love for us is deep and it's rich and it's profound and that you paid the ultimate price so that we could have a relationship with you. May we receive that and may it become a, a reality in our hearts and our minds as we look to you. We love you, God.
not sure if we have words up for the song right now, but um, we're going to sing This Is My Father's World. This is my father, a son and daughter.